Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that. Biblical, biblical theology, theology study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction. And the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. All right, friends, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. This is our 101st episode, and we got a great show lined up for you. We're going to have a guy on 
that I have been wanting to get on this show for a long time, but uh, the way he, the way his work schedule has been, it has just been hard to uh, to be able to get him on the show. But uh, it's really good to have Dr. Phil Fernandez, who will be with us uh, in about 25 minutes or so. So hang on for that. We're going to be looking at his book, Hijacking the Historical Jesus, which really is looking at a lot of uh, liberal scholarship uh, with people like Bart Ehrman, uh, Richard Carrier, um, Robert Price, uh, etc. And uh, I have with me my co-host, again, he's back from last week, JJ. Say hello, JJ. Hi. How you doing today? Good. You ready for the show? Yes, it is going to be great. It is going to be great. That is true. It is going to be great. I wanted to start off talking a little bit uh, about Ratio Christi and uh, just some of the stuff that we're doing. I'm a chapter director for Ratio Christi at Winthrop University. And uh, Ratio Christi is just Latin for reasons for Christ. And it's one of the very, I think it's really one of the only only ministry uh, that is dedicated to uh, apologetics. I know there's other Christian ministries on campus uh, that uh, sometimes will do uh, certain things during dealing with apologetics and they bring a speaker in, etc., which is great. Uh, but Ratio Christi is really pretty much the whole purpose of the of the ministry is to equip students to defend the faith and uh, disciple them. It gives them it gives them boldness um, to be able to not only learn what they believe and why they believe it, but also helps them evangelize. You know, the college campus can be a very intimidating place. It can be a very very intimidating place uh, as people go in and um, they're having their their beliefs challenged and uh, etc. And it can be uh, a real challenge. So I wanted to play a short video. Uh, it's a promotion. Or I should say more like an introduction for what Ratio Christi is. So maybe you're a college student or maybe you're you're a lay apologist and you're wanting to get involved in apologetics on the student campus uh, ministries and you've never heard of Ratio Christi. So I'll play this uh, this clip. Let you guys hear what Ratio Christi is and we'll come back with a few thoughts on that. Uh, before we bring Dr. Fernandez on. If I could have a moment of your time, I would like to bring to your attention a very serious issue. The intellectual viability of the Christian worldview is being challenged in the classrooms, by other students, and even the professors. This is accomplished by anti-religious campus organizations and gatherings. Look in a mirror and understand the delusion of Christianity. Once you can see what is going on, the hope is that you will be able to start healing your delusion. With each healing, we make our world a better place. Best-selling books by famous atheistic professors geared toward college students. And speeches promoting militant atheism. These people, the reflective people, they know. They know there aren't any good reasons to believe in God. We've got them on the run. 
We're almost there. We're almost there. All done with one goal in mind. Make religion look stupid while recruiting students to the secular worldview. We call the world's most famous atheist, Richard Dawkins. I can't tell you how excited I am to see students taking up the banner of secularism. And the Secular Student Alliance is carrying the banner forward and it is very, very exciting to all of us in the movement to see young people involved. Young people involved. And it's working. Statistics show that up to 80% of professing Christians will walk away from their faith while attending secular colleges and universities. Many within the first year. They simply are not intellectually prepared to face the onslaught of even the most basic objections to the Christian worldview. How do you know that Jesus is the only way? I... <laughs> this is a tough question. Why, are there, why the contradictions if the Bible is the Word of God? Why not believe in Muhammad with, with what he says? I mean, so what makes the Bible so different? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> um, you know what? I'm going to have to ask my question for now. We are losing the battle for our students. We need a solution to win back the universities for the cause of Christ. everyone this evening to the first ever Ratio Christi debate featuring Dr. Michael Tooley and Dr. William Lane Craig. Good evening and uh, thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank Ratio Christi. Now in tonight's debate, uh, I'm going to defend one basic contention, namely that the arguments for theism are better than the arguments for atheism. Through weekly meetings, we aim to stimulate intellectual integrity with debate, lectures, dialogue, and discussion on the most pressing topics of our day. The secular worldview has spread throughout universities, having an impact on the way students perceive their own beliefs. Ratio Christi is here to equip Christian students in answering the questions of science, philosophy, history, and worldview. We want to achieve our goal of reestablishing Christian thinking in the academic setting. 
there are three ways in which you can help support Rocio Christi. Through prayer, informing other Christians of your organization, and finally, donations. Rocio Christi relies on your financial support to help sustain the organization. So come help us win back the universities for the cause of Christ. Let me share what one student said after participating in a Rocio Christi club at North Carolina State. Rocio Christi has given me something that I did not know exists, a rational and logical defense for my faith. When I dialogue with atheists, they are shocked I have a defense. When I run into skeptics, they are overwhelmed by the amount of evidence supporting creation. Last but not least, when I talk to Christians about this, they find that their belief has a strong historical foundation that cannot be shaken. As a Ratio Christi chapter director, I have found this extremely exciting because I have seen lives transformed. By coming to one of our organization meetings, you can actually meet solid, true Christians and ask questions and get the real truth, get down to the bottom nitty-gritty truth of what it means to be a Christian. Not only can you be confident in your faith, but then you can defend it. It's really given me a solid foundation to stand upon. It's really given me confidence in my faith. With other people who are listening who may have doubts or may not be sure of their religion or choices yet, they can go, oh, there's another side. They helped them uh, meet these objections on a very intellectual level. They are no longer afraid to come in confrontation with people who might disagree with them. It's so easy to walk away from your faith if you don't know these answers, if you're unaware that there are answers out there. And that we can know why we believe what we believe. This is powerful stuff. folks, so you kind of see exactly why we do Ratio Christi. It really is a counter to a lot of the things that, uh, for example, the Secular Student Alliance is doing. Uh, so with Ratio Christi, um, again, we're, we're trying to engage the students with good reasons and evidence to believe the Christian faith. And just, you know, let me tell you a little bit about what we've done at Winthrop. Uh, university where I'm at in Rock Hill, uh, where me and my wife uh, serve as missionaries. We've been there for about two years now, and uh, the first event we did was a talk called "Has Science Buried God?" and brought in a, a good friend of mine uh, who did a ta- who uh, has a degree in physics as well as uh, philosophy, and for an hour gave the case for the existence of God and then took another hour after the lecture to answer questions. And we had over 200 people show up to this event. Uh, it was really, really quite amazing. The Freethinkers Club, which is kind of known as um, kind of an atheistic group on campus, were the ones that sponsored the event for us. So we were able to actually have the time to get up there and present the case and and be able to have the crowd. Um, We've also done a talk on the New Testament's uh, reliability. We did that at uh, BCM, which is a Baptist college ministry. Um, And we had several students show up there. It It was a great time, great discussion, looked at some of the objections that Muslims give towards 
uh, the reliability of the Bible. And um, it was really good. Probably had close to 100 people come out that night. Uh, and then finally, our last event that we did was, Is God a Moral Monster? And this was, was right before Thanksgiving and had uh, several people come out for that event. And so people are very interested in these topics. People are very interested in the discussion. And I think a lot of times people have this idea that being a missionary means uh, going overseas or going to a third world country. I just, folks want to tell you that some of the, the, the harshest places to do ministry at and some of the toughest mission field is right here in the U.S., and it's right at the universities. These are where their students are being taught uh, a lot of things that really go uh, completely against the biblical worldview. And what happens is, as the, the video was saying, up to 80% of Christians, first year of college, walk away from the Christian faith. And so what Ratio Christie does is tries to give the students reasons that Christianity is true, not just maybe what they've heard from their Sunday school, etc. They want to, to bring in the disciplines of science and philosophy and history and really make the case because really at the end of the day, all truth is God's truth. And so we should be able to look at other disciplines, and if the Christian faith is is true, then we should be able to uh, not fear going into those. You know, growing up, um, you know, I grew up in a home that apologetics was just not something that was really known that much about. And so when issues of science and evolution and this came up, um, you know, really didn't know how to handle it other than to, you know, basically quote the Bible. And what I found is that's pretty commonplace. That's, that really happens uh, quite a lot. And I think, um, there's, of course, there's nothing wrong with quoting the Bible, as I love the Bible. But I think we need to be able to also uh, undergird what the Bible is saying with, with reasons, with evidence, with facts. We don't have anything to fear in those areas. So I think um, a, a really good place to start again with that would be the college campus. What we're finding is students who've never heard of apologetics or seen apologetics, when they start learning about it, when they start reading some of the things like, uh, you know, last semester we went through uh, William Lane Craig's book, On Guard. And this book really does an excellent job of just going over some of the basic arguments for the existence of God, like the beginning of the universe, uh, the fine-tuning of the universe, the reliability of the New Testament, and, and the historical arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. When they actually see these things uh, defended, because in that particular book they actually go over some of the uh, objections to the arguments the common objections, and they show how uh, they're answered. The students really were amazed, not only of the power of the arguments, but how easy it was to answer the objections. So if you go to Devin, uh, Devin Palu, uh trying to remember the exact name of the link, I'll, I'll put it up for you guys to, to look at it. 
Um, if you just Google Devin Palu or Rastio Christie, it'll come up. But uh, it'll give you more information. It'll tell you more about us, more about what we're doing. Uh, if you also, if you start looking into maybe your own area where you live at, if you're if you're a lay apologist, if you're someone who's wanting to get into apologetics and ministry, then see if your local university or even community college has a ratio Christie. A uh, good chance that they do, because ratio Christies are popping up all over. Uh, so I would I would suggest going in and checking that out. Uh, but also if if your your town or city does not have a ratio Christi, uh, get a hold of them and see if possibly they would be interested in starting um, a ratio Christi there. So if you go to devinpalu.ratiochristi.org, that's Devin, D-E-V-I-N, uh, P-E-L-L-E-W, dot ratiochristi.org, you'll find more information about Ratio Christi and kind of some of the stuff that that we are doing. So I think that would be good, and I think that would uh, be something for people to check out because a lot of times they just are not aware uh, of what we're doing on the campus and some of the college ministry. This, this um, coming semester, we're going to be taking our students through Greg Kogel's book, Tactics, and we wanted to show them, you know, give them a little bit of uh, some meat and potatoes to show what it is we're trying to defend, some of the arguments. So we did that last semester. So this semester we're going to we're going to take them through the book uh, Tactics with Greg Kokel, which shows them how to engage in these type of discussions. Uh, we're also going to be going through um, True You, which is a series put out by the Truth Project, and this there's going to be about, I think, five different lessons in the series. This particular one we're going to be looking at is Does God Exist? And uh, it's actually Stephen Meyer, Dr. Stephen Meyer, who's going to be teaching uh, the class, and he's, he's brilliant. I mean, he's probably one of the top guys right now in the field of intelligent design, and he does, uh, he's got a lot of good segments on the fine-tuning of the universe, on information theory, uh, some of the real problems, uh, both logically and biologically, with uh, naturalism and Darwinism. And so that'll be that'll be good. That'll be a really good time for the students to kind of get a more in-depth look at some of these issues. And it's it's done very well. I mean, they really did it for the college classroom. So it'll be it'll be a great uh, time. We've got a couple, uh, or at least one event we're, we're trying to plan for this semester as well. So uh, keep us in prayer uh, about that. And uh, we're just we're looking forward to, to seeing what, what comes next. So just uh, keep us in your prayers as we transition and are doing that. So let me do this. We're going to go ahead and take a uh, commercial break for a second, uh, maybe, maybe two minutes, and then we will come back. And I will introduce our guest, Dr. Phil Fernandez, who is on the line with us. So we will be right back after this after this break. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. 
The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. It's often claimed that evolution is simply change over time. And since change over time can be seen everywhere, then evolution is obviously true. But highly qualified creation scientists say there is much more to it than that. For evolution to have turned particles into people, simple change over time is not enough. A special kind of change is needed. That is, naturally occurring change that adds new genetic instructions. No one has seen this special kind of change happen. Darwin's finches, peppered moths and adapting bacteria are all examples of naturally occurring change. But not one of them shows the addition of new genetic instructions. Not one of them writes any brand new genetic code specifying how to make some new complex feature, such as feathers for lizards, for example. And since codes and programs cannot write themselves, there must have been a designer for all living things. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. All right, and we are back. I'm sitting here with my uh, my little seven-year-old nephew, JJ. Hello. <laughs> and uh, we are getting ready to uh, interview Dr. Fernandez. Let me let me read just a little bit about Dr. Fernandez for those who are not uh, familiar with him. Uh, Dr. Fernandez earned the following degrees, uh, a Ph.D. in philosophy of religion from Greenwich University, a Master of Arts in Religion from Liberty University, a Bachelor's of Theology from Columbia Evangelical Seminary. Publicly debated some of America's leading atheists. Uh, he's lectured and debated in defense of the Christian worldview at some of America's leading uh, universities, such as Princeton, University of Washington, Oregon State University, and the University of North Carolina. Dr. Fernandez is a member of four professional societies, including the Evangelical Theological Society and the Evangelical Philosophical Society. Dr. Fernandez is also the author of several books, uh, The God Who Sits Enthroned, Evidence for God's Existence, No Other Gods, a Biblical or a Defense of Biblical Christianity, God, Government, and the Road to Tyranny. And what we're going to be looking at today is hijacking the historical Jesus. Dr. Fernandez, are you there? Yeah, sure am. How you doing, Devin? <laughs> I am doing good, man. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah, it's good to hear your voice as well there. Yeah. So how's JJ uh, doing? JJ's doing good. You want to say something there, JJ? Hi. Hello, JJ. He's going to be a He's going to be a future apologist as well, I think, Doc. <laughs> That's good. We could always use more. Always need more. You know, so I I, I listened to Dr. Fernandez, I remember, probably uh, 10 years ago. I remember listening. I, I found him 
on uh, some internet site that uh, that guy that used to put all your your stuff up. I can't I can't remember his name. Apologetics three fifteen. Brian. Owens. Yeah, that might. Yeah, that probably was it. That's probably where I found it actually. And I was working as a security guard third shift, and so I had a bunch of time on my hands. And I just remember listening to a ton of Dr. Fernandez. Uh, Lectures and talks. I think the first one of the first ones I heard, uh, you were in on a uh, radio debate with uh, the Infidel guy. Oh yeah, yeah, Reggie Finley. Yeah, that was a while back, wasn't it? Oh, sure was, sure was. Yep. But, uh, you you have you have uh, done several several debates, right? I mean, how many how many formal debates have you been in now? Uh, I would. Probably guess between twenty five and thirty uh, because I teach in a Christian high school. It's uh, I end up turning down more debates than I accept because they usually want you to debate during the school year, and that's when I'm the busiest. So I've been down to usually only about one or two debates a year, but but I've probably had a total of uh, twenty five to thirty public debates. Oh, and not only are you a, a teacher there at your high school, but you also. Our pastor, is that correct? Yeah, Pastor Trinity Bible Fellowship, and our church, you know, I planted it in 1988, but I, I tend to preach about an hour and ten minute sermons, so uh, so our attendance has always been a little bit low, you know, if we get if we get 80 to 90 people, we're happy on a particular Sunday, so uh, uh, so I'm bivocational, and, um, and so, I, so it's like I tell people, I... I pastor a church full-time, and I teach full-time Bible and apologetics at a Christian high school uh, to support my apologetics habit, so. <laughs> well, you're one of those one of those few guys that I know that I really want to be like, you know, someone that is a, an apologist, and, but also a, a pastor. That's my heart as well. So it's really, really neat to see guys like yourself out there doing it, and then, of course, you're Lovely wife, Miss Kathy, who we've got to uh, meet several times. Yep, yep, yeah. She, she's uh, you know just being being prayer for her health. She's she's still having some health challenges, but she's a godly woman and encourages me and stands by my side and puts up with me. So it uh, it makes it possible for for me to do what I do. Uh, without her, I I don't I don't know what I'd be doing. So right. Tell us a little bit about maybe how you uh, how you grew up and how how you came to know the Lord and uh, how you got um, into doing theology and apologetics. Well, I, I grew up uh, uh, the grandson. I grew up in Essex County, New Jersey, the grandson of Portuguese immigrants and Italian immigrants. So I'm half Portuguese, half Italian. My dad's full blooded Portuguese. My mom was full blooded Italian. And, um, and I grew up in Essex County, New Jersey. It's one of those counties that kind of borders on Manhattan, so you get a little bit of the New York-type accent and, and attitude. And um, a lot of cities there, Newark is the main city in Essex County. And um, and so I grew up in a Roman Catholic home, but I never really embraced the faith. You know, I just went to Mass because my dad made me go to Mass and stuff, and and um, I uh, started boxing back then. You know, in New Jersey, a lot of guys box, and I didn't know that the churches and then uh, police uh, athletic leagues open up 
boxing gyms to keep the kids off the streets, to keep them out of trouble. And I didn't know that was the reason for it. I just wanted to hit a guy and not get in trouble. And and so I I grew up boxing and stuff and and um, went most of my school years through parochial school, Roman Catholic school, and then transferred in 10th grade from Essex Catholic High School in Newark to James Caldwell High School in West Caldwell, New Jersey. And it was there that the, the teacher... My favorite teacher was Dr. Athenaeus, and he was a uh, you know product of the '60s. And uh, I graduated in 1978, though. But but he was more of a counterculture guy, and brilliant guy, creative writing teacher, and he was an atheist. And it caused me to kind of question whether or not God even exists. So I was rather skeptical of God's existence when I graduated high school. Had no direction. Stayed with boxing, but that didn't get me anywhere. And you know, and eventually, a light heavyweight at the gym I was boxing at when I was 20 years old, a guy named Rob Tucker, uh, talked me into uh, joining the Marine Corps uh, with him and going in the Marine Corps with him on the buddy system, where no matter where you get stationed, as long as you choose the same MOS, the same job, you would be together with your buddy. And so I signed up with him on the buddy system, but he never showed up to uh, to take the oath. And um, and so when I took the oath, it was me and five strangers being flown out to Paris Island, South Carolina, for Marine Corps boot camp. So that was pretty pretty radical change for me, taking me out of my comfort zone, kind of the fast-paced life in, in Essex County, New Jersey, and then bringing me down to Marine Corps boot camp where I wasn't used to taking orders, and, and that's all you do in the Marine Corps. So, But, uh, but from there, you still there, Devin? Devin, you there? Yep, yep, gotcha. Oh, okay. I yeah, am there. So yep. Sometimes this phone has a problem of dropping out, so I'm just making sure that you're there. Yeah, so then, so then <laughs> I just basically there. flew me out to Paris Island, and, you know, and the guy's getting in my face and everything, and it got to the point, uh, especially, and, you know, they sent me to Camp Pendleton, South, South uh, Southern California, for infantry training after boot camp, and they sent me up to Bangor, Washington, to guard nuclear weapons. That's incredibly boring duty. And so I was—I almost felt like I was going to have a breakdown. So I—it wasn't a search for truth; it was a search for meaning. Life seemed so meaningless, and it was a search for meaning that led me, eventually, of all things, to reading Hal Lindsey books about the end times. And then one thing led to another, and I would only listen to spiritual matters uh, from Roman Catholics. And some Roman Catholics in the Charismatic movement invited me to their Charismatic prayer meeting, and. I went and eventually accepted Christ as my Savior, trusted in Him for salvation. Then I started reading the Bible, and it took me two years to realize I need to get out of the charismatic movement, I need to get out of Roman Catholicism, and I need to get rebaptized. Um, the prayer meeting was headed by um, uh, a young lady, and uh, it was a great gal, and we became real good friends, and then eventually, you know, I kind of fell in love with her, and she... We reciprocated, and then uh, I asked her to be my bride, and so uh, so we were married in 1984. So I got saved in 1981, and um, and we got married in 1984, and um, and then I started feeling feeling called to to, to Bible college and studying the the Word and stuff, and that's when uh, when I enrolled in Liberty University. Had an outstanding distance program back then; they were way ahead of their time, and. Um, 
And I was already listening to Walter Martin, the first Bible answer man, so I got into apologetics from the day I was saved in 1981. But when I went to Liberty, I got to meet and study under Gary Habermas, and I had been reading his books and, you know, his the evidence he would give for Jesus' resurrection. So we became good friends and uh, really got hooked on apologetics. And and um, But while in the Marine Corps, while saved, um, I, a lot of guys would bring objections to me against Christianity, and, and I cared enough about them to look for the answers. So it just became uh, my normal procedure to not only share my faith, uh, but to defend it as well. So that's that's kind of how I got started in apologetics. All right, great. That's uh, I love love hearing that story. I've heard it a few times, and and I uh, really really enjoy listening to that. So you've done. You know you you say that uh, also you from there. I guess you started. Uh, how did you how did you start getting into the debate scene from there? I'm just curious. Uh, that that was just really weird. A year before I started, I started my church in 1988, but in 1987, um, there were you know there were still Roman Catholics that I was ministering to, trying to lead to Christ, and there were still Roman Catholics who I even fellowshiped with because they were true believers. They accepted the Lord through the, the Catholic Charismatic Movement was kind of a back to the Bible movement, but uh, but they weren't convinced yet to to leave the Catholic Church very tough decision for somebody uh, to make if they've grown up and you know from, from families that have been generations maybe even centuries of and um and so what happened was um uh uh what happened were well, you still there yeah your phone cut out yeah, for okay. a second but... yeah, yeah so what what happened was that a guy some gentleman came in and taught at one of the Roman Catholic Bible studies inclusivism the idea that you can be saved by Jesus if you're a good Buddhist or Hindu. You don't have to uh, explicitly believe in Jesus as your Savior um, as long as you you know, treat people well, you love God, and you love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to go to heaven. Now, of course, we as Christians know you can't love God until you know who he is, and you can't, uh, you can't come to God and love him except through Jesus Christ. But, but this guy was teaching something different, so... I, I thought he needed to be confronted, so I had listened to so many debates, so I challenged the guy to a debate. His name was Morgan Stith, an elderly gentleman, and I debated him on the issue, does a person have to uh, believe in Jesus to be saved? And um, and so I kind of just shut down that little local heresy. Wow. Um, then um, a few years later... Year, maybe even a year or two later, maybe 88, 89, maybe 90, I'm not sure. Um, local high school, Central Kitsap High School, I used to go in once a year and, and speak on creation science. And they had a real scholarly history professor who was teaching uh, uh, a philosophy course on the high school level and was destroying the faith of students since he was an atheist. So they asked me to debate him. So I said, sure, I'll debate him. Well, then the wow. guy's the guy's wife died a couple days before the debate. So I told uh -oh. him, I'm, I'm, you know, oh, I'm really sorry about that. But they said, but don't worry. We have a high school student who wants to debate you, and he's the captain of our debate team. And I said, well, you don't understand. I've got, you know, I've got a lot of schooling at this point, and there's nothing for me to gain by... 
beating a high school student, and if he beats me, everything will lose. So I'm not, I don't want to debate some, some high school kid trained in debate, and he's not even going to understand the, the more uh, complicated points that I make. Um, but then a few colleagues told me it, it would just look bad for the churches in the community for me to pull out of the debate because my opponent's wife died. And uh, right. so I ended up taking the debate and figuring, well, at least the gospel will be preached in the high school there. And uh, But the kid was uh, a young, brilliant atheist named Jeffrey J. Louder. Yeah. And um, it was a high school one of the, kid. One of, the, one of the sharper atheists that I've... I've, I've uh... I've read. I mean, he's a sharp. He's a sharp guy. Yeah, and we and we debated Crazy Birds Evolution, but he was just a high school kid, you know. We became friends and all. And then I didn't hear anything from him. He went on college, went into the Air Force, and then he became one of the leading atheists. And then, you know, years later, I was asked to debate him once again at University of North Carolina, the Chapel Hill campus, after he was a, you know, college grad and established himself as an atheist. That was my second debate with him, but. Um, and then Jeffrey, he knew the other atheists, so he would he would let them he let them know about me. So guys like Eddie Tabosh and Michael Martin, um, um, uh, you know um, Dan Barker, you know they knew about me probably through Jeffrey J. Louder. So I was just kind of thrown into it. It was crazy too because it was at a point where J.P. Moreland had debated uh, Kai Nielsen and then kind of got out of debates. And the only big-name guy who was regularly taking debates on God's existence, Habermas was taking debates on Jesus' resurrection with Anthony Flew. In fact, he hadn't even taken that many back then. Uh, and um, and so William Lane Craig was pretty much the go-to guy. So it got to the point where any time they didn't want William Lane Craig, they wanted to look for a new face or maybe somebody easier to beat up on in their estimation <laughs> My name, you know, was thrown in. So Princeton Atheist Society at Princeton called me up to debate um, one of their guys. And, oh, and I, I'm drawing a blank on his name. He was a, a really nice guy, not a good debater, but a uh, brilliant guy. But you said, again, not a good debater. Elliot Ratzman was his name. And um, But I think the big, the big thing that really put me uh on the map as far as a Christian debater was when I was asked by Internet Infidels, which was headed by Jeffrey J. Ladder, who had founded it, when I was asked to do a written debate with Professor Michael Martin at a Boston University, who at that time was probably America's leading atheist philosopher and the author of uh of Atheism a Philosophical Justification. So there there were entire courses at schools that taught apologetics using his textbooks and, and and trying to refute atheism, and I was the guy who got to debate him. He was very picky about taking debates and about people selling and Christian selling things where he contributed to it and making money off of it. So it was, it was really weird, but I was really fortunate that I got to debate him. That debate is still online. It's probably been read by, I would guess, a few million people over the years. We made it. We put it in print. Got his permission to sell it um, at cost, so no Christians would make a profit, and and we were, he only gave us a thumbs up to make a thousand copies. It's interesting too. He just died recently, and in his obituary on one of the secular websites, um, I'm the only Christian that's mentioned, and uh, and they mentioned that um, that you know he had debated uh, Christian 
scholars, most notably Phil Fernandez, or most famously was what they said, Phil Fernandez, which kind of really puzzled me because I'm pretty wow. sure he's debating like Jane, like like John Frame and some really big gun guys. But uh, so that was an honor just to be mentioned in that obituary. But he was a really nice guy, former Marine. I'm a former Marine, and and um, but I got to meet him when I debated Jeffrey J. Louder because our our debate between me and him was just over the internet. And uh, but people people could still download that today from my web one of my websites or from uh, the uh, Internet Infidels uh, website or the secular web and um, and there's still people reading that uh, to this day and eventually I got to debate Dan Barker as well and uh, and then yeah, how, did, how did that debate and, how, how yeah. did that debate with Dan Barker how did that get set up and and what were some of the things that happened at that debate. I don't know exactly how it got set up, but I think I think he attended. He, he reminded me of a guy that I saw that attended my debate against Jeffrey J. Louder at a major atheist, atheist conference at the University of North Carolina, the Chapel Hill campus. That's when I met Richard Howe. I knew Thomas Howe from Liberty University, but Richard Howe showed up from Southern Evangelical Seminary with about six or seven of his students to watch the debate between myself and uh, Jeffrey J. Louder. And uh, I think Dan Barker was there. And, and these guys all take notes. And so that, that's one of the scary things about taking debates. Like, like you know, William and Craig debates the same topic with so many people that there's no surprises. They know exactly. Right. It, 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 it's almost like showing up to a gunfight and everybody knows what gun you're going to use, what ammunition you have, how well you shoot, what your style is, what your stance is. And and guys like William Lane Craig, um, you know, and myself, sometimes we have no idea where this other guy's coming from. I mean, when I debated Elliot Ratzman, he had never written on the subject. So it was like, wow, I'm going to just go, you know, debate, you know, the unknown here. And, um, uh, but whatever the case, I think I think Dan Barker was there. And now the good thing was, though, Dan Barker, I got to watch seven or eight of his debates, and they all go the same way. Um, he he is real big on what is uh, an unethical way to debate, which is what I call uh, question bombing. And that's yeah. where you realize that you could ask a, a question in 20 seconds, and it might take 10 minutes to give an adequate response to it. And since debate is timed, um, if you ask more questions than your opponent has time to answer, at the end of the debate, you can list all the questions he didn't answer and, and, and create the illusion that you won the debate. Now, the way you combat that is you just try to ignore the questions that you don't think um, really stumped the crowd, and that's really hard to tell. Because all you got is nonverbal communication, um, uh, and then take the ones that you think are relevant and try to group five or six of them together and try to ant, you know, kill five or six birds with one stone. Um, but it's right. very, very difficult, and that's why um, when William Lane Craig, when his uh, scholarship was questioned by somebody on the internet, and they said, "I've seen all your debates; it's the same old stuff all the time. I don't think you're that great of a scholar." William Lane Craig's response was, debates are all about time management, not scholarship. 
If you want, if wow. you want to test my scholarship, read my sixty-page papers that get published <laughs> in prestigious uh, academic societies. And um, and so, you know, not everybody. I think Einstein probably would have been a horrible debater. So right. you know, not everybody who's brilliant automatically is a good debater. So you got to really shoot off the hip well. And um, and uh, but I think that's where Dan Barker found out about me because it was shortly after that that his organization out of Wisconsin asked me to debate him in my own backyard up at Bellevue Community College. The other thing he did too, which was really interesting, he stacks the deck. They publicize it well. So usually when I take a debate, at least half of the audience believes in the existence of some type of God, sometimes 75% of the audience. I mean, they might believe in some type of God, but still like the atheist better because they're real politically correct or whatever. Um, right. Usually most of the audience, or at least half the audience, believes in God. But he managed to stack the deck so that um, I'd say that probably about 75% of the audience, he would, he would make a point that make no sense at all, and three-quarters of the audience would just start cheering it was standing room only and it was pretty crazy so i thought man i'm just gonna do this debate and head for the nearest exit when it's over of course i couldn't because after my debates i don't know if it's a good sign or a bad sign but i usually get the guy i debated you will usually get three or four people line up to talk to him and i'll get 30 or 40 people and wow. um but they usually i to me it just seems like that they don't slam me they just I said something that caught their interest, and they want to talk some more. And I think I connect better with with some audiences. But that was a very interesting debate because I think Dan Barker, I would say Dan Barker's probably the hardest guy that I've ever debated, yet I probably wouldn't even rank him in the top – I don't think I'd rank him in the top eight as far as uh, how you know in brilliance among the atheists that I've debated. There, uh, guys like Michael Martin, Jeffrey J. Louder, who are much more philosophically knowledgeable than Dan Barker. But with Dan Barker, it's his, his speaking ability. Uh, I think yeah. he'd make an out like politician. I think he would win a lot of elections. Um, he knows how to work an audience. He like at one point in his debates and his opening statement, he he says, um, um, uh, you know, would you know this is before nine eleven? So he says, well, would uh, Phil, would you have allowed the the Oklahoma City uh, bombing if you were God? Would you have allowed that? And of course, I shake my head, no. And uh, and he says, well, then you're nicer than God. And I notice he did, does that in all his debates. Knowing yeah. that the guy he's asking the question to is not allowed to respond because of debate protocol. So, um, so when he did that to me, I started responding, which freaked him out, freaked everybody out, and 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 then the moderator pointed at me, so I just shut up. But it it's it just like, dude, do you do an opening statement? Do an opening statement. Do not turn to me and ask me a question. And right. um. And so he does, and he, he does a lot of things. He's one of the few debate opponents that will kind of he'll glare, glare at you and stuff um, during the like Q and A and things of that kinda, sort. He'll turn his back on the audience and face you and really try to get under your skin. I think he yeah, knows that if I throw a tantrum, if the Christian throws a tantrum, that counts against us. If the atheist throws a tantrum, it's it's no big deal. Um, 
So uh, yeah. so he he knows how to work a crowd. So he was very so I had to really be on the top of my game in that debate. But I think the two points where I really nailed him on. He even told me after the debate <laughs> that I did better against him than Geisler and Norman Geisler. That was the wow. I remember it because it was just sounded weird that he told me that after the debate. But um, now he thinks he beat Geisler. Geisler beat him. So if I'm right and Geisler beat him and I did better than Geisler, then that'd be tantamount to uh, admitting defeat. But I don't think he would admit defeat when he wrote his uh, right. second autobiography. Uh, he mentions he talks about our debate. And um, acts like he was real brilliant in it or whatever. But I think the two times that I nailed him was during the Q&A when I asked him, um, how much does a thought weigh? And the audience started laughing. They were like, oh, this stupid Christian thinks you can weigh thoughts. And uh, But that wasn't my point. I knew Dan Barker's uh, worldview was uh, materialism, only matter exists. So right. he thinks thoughts can be weighed. So I so I asked him, how much does a thought weigh? The audience laughed at me, and they stopped laughing when he said, oh, you can weigh a thought. And I <laughs> said, so are you just saying a, a thought, a choice, a decision is nothing but a, a reaction inside somebody's brain? And he said, uh, yeah, basically. And I said, well, then why are you so tough on Timothy McVeigh? Because he kept bringing up Timothy McVeigh, blowing up the Oklahoma City building as an evidence of evil that – no God would ever allow. And um, and I said, well, then why are you so tough on Timothy McVeigh when all he was doing was rep- responding to a brain squirt? And then the audience, you know, started laughing. And then uh, he was kind of kind of embarrassed. But my point being there is that if we have no non-material soul, we're not responsible for our actions. And um, uh, we just can't hold people responsible and call their actions evil. If uh, there is no non-material soul, if I catch a cold, if I get the flu, nobody says, well, that was evil that you decided to catch the flu. No, that was biologically determined. But if we don't have souls, then then, um, then the choice to murder people is also biologically determined. Then also in that debate, and this got a lot of – I don't edit my debates. We just show the entire debate and let people decide. But once it gets on YouTube and on the Internet, you know, people do with it what they like. And so a lot of people took took out one portion and and said like atheist Dan Barker argues for God's existence or proves God's existence, and that was because during the Q and A I asked them because um, he said that you know the Big Bang caused all the order and complexity in the world today, and I said well can you give me an example um, of an explosion I should have said random explosion that produces all the order and complexity that we find. You know, can you give me an example of an explosion that takes things from a state of chaos to a state of order and complexity? It produces more order. And he said, yeah, the Big Bang. I said, no, that's what we're debating about. So if you think the Big Bang did that, give me an example of some random explosion that we know that actually caused more order and complexity. And and I didn't think he was going to have an answer, but he's a brilliant guy. And he said, yeah, yeah, when my wife tells me we need milk... I I grab my keys, I go out to the car, put the keys in the ignition, I turn it, and there's a, a spark, a little explosion, if you will. Um, and then that gets the car running. And I was kind of, it, it took me aback, and I just prayed, Lord, give me a response. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me. And so I said, well, you would have to admit that cars were intelligently designed. And he said, of course. 
And so I said, thank you. That's another good argument for theism. I wasn't trying to get the entire audience to laugh, but the entire audience uh, did laugh. Yeah. Now, where yeah, that was fairness a brilliant, in, his, in, in his autobiography where he um, – yeah, we, for, for some reason, it's like 80,000 people have watched the some edited portion of that um, with Spanish subtitles. So, um, wow. so I, I think if I get run out of ministry in the United States, I might go to Spain. Maybe, uh, maybe I've got a following out there. But, but whatever the case, uh, in fairness to him, in his autobiography, he tried to make me sound like an idiot because one of the last questions he asked me was, uh, "What would it take for uh, me to not believe?" What type of proof would it take for me to not believe? And he, he's basically going to say, well, this guy is just pretending he has evidence for for his faith. He really doesn't have evidence. But I said, besides a solid rational defense that you would have to prove to me that God doesn't exist, there's an existential side as well. Because uh, I've encountered, just like I encountered my brother, and I have a personal relationship with my with my brother, I've encountered... Uh, the Lord and have a personal relationship with Him. So I not only have rational knowledge of God, I also have experiential knowledge of God. So disproving the existence of God to me uh, would come pretty close to you know disproving the existence of my brother. And and so what he did was he tried to misrepresent that as I was just saying. Um, uh, I believe in God totally apart from evidence where I was saying it's both propositional truth plus personal relationship. Yeah. So he, whereas he reminds me more of a he, he modernist. Me, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, uh, he reminds me a lot of like a dirty boxer, you know, in debates. That's that's what he puts me in the mind of, uh, a, a yeah, dirty yeah, boxer. It, it's one of those deals. There are some, some of the most brilliant Christian apologists should probably never debate him just because they're too polite. Now, uh, I try to be polite – but I also grew up in New Jersey, and so I got a little bit of fight in me. But it's unfortunate. But there are some guys that I would not encourage uh, Christian scholars to debate unless you've got enough fight to fight back, uh, because otherwise it's going to give the false impression to the audience that he's um, uh, intellectually bullying you, when in reality he's just plain bullying you. And uh, but he's he's. Uh, you know, he's made a living. He's probably—I I would think he's probably had about 100, 120 debates. I mean, that's what wow. he does for a living. And uh, and then he goes around to different states and uh, fights against them, uh, uh, having religious—you uh, know—the Ten Commandments and things of that sort. And he's from Wisconsin, and he he messed with us up here in Olympia, Washington, too. So. So he's sticking his nose in everybody else's business as well. So now he, I hug, gave him a hug after the debate. I think I hold a record for hugging more leading atheists than any other Christian apologist. But he's the only one who didn't hug me back. It was like hugging really? a board. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Eddie Tabash would give me a hug. Eddie, Eddie Tabash stays in touch with me. Me and Jeff Louder should. He lives not far from me, but we, we haven't really kept in touch. But we love we love each other. And... um Elliot Ratzman uh, once in a while would drop me an email and stuff like that. So, uh, um, so you know, I'm, I've become friends with most of the guys that I debate, but but not Dan Barker. Dan Barker takes it too personal. So, wow, I love it. I love love hearing uh, hearing kind of the behind the scenes stories of, of your debates. 
it's interesting. We don't get to hear that a lot. But um, and, and it is, me, uh, like, there was, there was one guy from the University of North Carolina debate said you dominated the debate, but then you were so evasive during the Q&A and the Q&A from the audience, the questions from the audience, and I had to explain to the guy, see, it's really weird, too, because my debates are usually videotaped, but I try to debate in the best possible way for the particular audience that I have. So I'm not thinking about the Internet audience. I'm thinking about that particular debate. Jeffrey J. Lyle's right. debate was one of the world's largest um, atheist gatherings in um, our lifetime. Um Wow. I think at that point, Paul Kurtz was there, too. I got to meet Paul Kurtz. He was, he's from Newark, New Jersey, too, so gave me a big oh, hug. Wow. We really liked each other and stuff. But um, And he's and he was the guy who wrote the foreword for Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2. But he had just recently written Humanist Manifesto 2000, and that was in September of 1999. So I think he was getting most of the signatures from, from Kai Nielsen, Michael Martin, and all these big guns uh, right there. So I knew the audience, with the exception of six guys with Richard Howe from Southern Evangelical Seminary and about six Campus Crusade for Christ guys who found out about it. The other 200 people were all atheists. And um, wow. so, and and these were some of the world's leading atheists, you know, from all over the world. So I give a quote for Colin Patterson that there's no record of transitional forms in the fossil record. And. You know, a guy takes the mic. Well, I was a colleague with of Colin uh, Patterson's for 30 years, and uh, and he told me he wished he hadn't made that remark. You know, so 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 there are situations where I either had to call a guy a liar, or or just you know choose which hill to fight on, and uh, right. and yeah. so um, so there were there were times I had to make it clear I came there to debate Jeffrey J. Louder not some physicist from Germany. And um, and the evasive tactic worked real well with that audience, but with people who don't didn't know what that conference was all about, um, right. that would be something where they might think, boy, why isn't he as, um, uh, you know, why isn't he taking the bull by the horns here? Well, because some of these guys were bringing objections to me that were outside of my field, and in their field, and it and so it was a lot of other little intramural debates that people wanted to get going. So, uh, so those are some of the types of dynamics that you you really face. I would discourage Christians from debating either the the uh, you know defending Christianity against an atheist or a Muslim or somebody in a Christian church. I'm not big on that because. Probably 95% of the people will be Christians, so you've got more to lose than you have to gain. I would try to find a neutral site where you've got a good shot at getting um, at least half of the crowd coming from some other worldview other than Christianity. And then if you go to university campuses, there's a good chance it's going to be the the only public proclamation of anything to do with Christianity, anything uh, pro-Christianity, it'll probably be the only public proclamation that year on that college campus that's pro-Christianity, and um, that will be attended by some non-believers. And um, and so I think that if you can, if a, if a Christian thinker 
knows he could do well enough at least to hold his own and at least to raise some questions in the minds of the atheists. Doesn't he have to win the debate? Um, right. That's good enough reason right now to get on the college campuses. If you could just get on the college campuses and raise just a little bit of doubt in these young, arrogant atheists who are only atheists because they're trying to please their professors, um, that, that's a good way to plant seeds. So I don't think we should evacuate it. At the same time, our, our culture keeps getting dumbed down more and more. So when I would make a good point 20 years ago in a debate, um, a lot of times I don't get a response from the audience anymore. It goes over their heads. And um, and so after a while, I'm thinking, you know, this the atheist I'm debating doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's he's not real smart, but he's real confident, and the audience thinks he knows what he's talking about. Am I accomplishing anything here? And, um, but, but I've had a lot of like campus crusade for Christ guys and fellowship, intervarsity fellowship guys saying, Hey, look, don't worry about it. All the objections that he raised that you didn't have time to answer, they've heard those objections, but they also, my students have also in their classes have heard all the other objections that you did respond to. So what you've right. proven to them is that there is a solid Christian response to these objections. So the next time that professor brings up, uh, another objection, another attack on Christianity, even if they don't know the answer, um, they're pretty confident that there is an answer. They just got to, you know, go look, look for it or get get a hold of you or some other apologist. And um, so uh, now there are some Christians, friendly fire can be vicious. And if you're going to be an apologist in the public arena and <laughs> academic circles, right. you will receive um, a lot of friendly fire. And... Um, so when uh, when Eddie Tabosh would uh, throw in a red herring to try to take the debate off track, you know, if, if somebody in a debate is getting battered, what they'll try to do is change the whole purpose of the debate, change the whole focus of the debate because they don't like the terrain on which they're being battered. And so Eddie Tabosh read a quote from me where where I stated that I was a young Earth creationist. So he tried to turn the debate into a debate about the age of the earth. And this is Washington State University. I'm not going to go to Washington State University and argue for a young earth. I'll, uh, right. I'll, lead, I'll lead somebody. First, I'll try to convince them God exists. Then I'll try to convince them that Jesus rose from the dead. Then I'll try to convince them through the power of the Holy Spirit to trust in Jesus for salvation. And then once they're saved, we can argue back and forth um, old earth versus young earth. Um, but... Um, so I just basically mentioned, yeah, I'm a young earther, but this debate is not about the age of the earth. If it's old earth creationism, I win. If it's young earth creationism, I win. If it's theistic evolution, I win. If God exists, I win. I'd like you to join right. me in this debate, Eddie, but this debate is not about the age of the earth. Well, there are a whole bunch of countercult ministry guys uh, in eastern Washington that attended the debate that really got on my case and acted like um, I compromised really? the faith or misrepresented God or ran away. And it's just like, guys, there's only so much time in a debate. I've got to use that time to argue the issue. And the issue is, does God exist? And exactly. um, and so um, taking friendly, if I told to Douglas Grotice in Colorado, he was presenting a paper that I attended, and uh, just about all the hits that apologists take, and he asked if anybody would add any to it, because he'd like to enlarge the paper, 
And I said, yeah, Doug, I'd, I'd add um, friendly fire. I said, um, all the abuse that I've taken from non-believers just makes me stronger, and I'm willing to do all the hard work of all the study and this and that, but the friendly fire that I get from Christian brothers, um, if I ever threw in the towel on apologetics, it would be because of that. And then he looked at wow. me and he smiled. I, I, I look, I could see look in his eyes and see that, you know, this guy's gone through 30 years of friendly fire himself. So, and um, he's a godly man, wow. loves the Lord, and you know, we hadn't seen each other in 20 him. years. So I walked in I love, late for I the talk. He, he stopped his talk and he said, he, he said, Phil, how are you doing? And everybody was like shocked, you know, and. He said, what's it been, 20 years? And I said, yeah, yeah, about that. And they told me he bought one of my books in Alaska. I think it was the debate wow. against Michael Martin. And and then he tells me he does a good Phil Fernandez impersonation. And then he went back to lecturing, and then most of the crowd was all staring at me wondering, because it was like, they know who Douglas Grotheis is. They never heard of Phil Fernandez. But they're just thinking, like, who is this guy that Douglas Grotheis had just started talking to him in the middle of a, a talk? But that's... Um, that's the way he is. He's a good, good brother. He's going through a lot of, a lot of rough things right now. He's just a godly man, and um, and uh, I really encourage, I encourage people to pick up his apologetics textbook, yeah. great textbook, and then all those books he wrote in the 1980s on the New Age movement before most Christians even knew what it was. Um, uh, I don't want to know what the Christian Church would look like without a great apologist like Douglas Grotheis. So, yeah, I I agree. His uh, I have a hard time deciphering which one's better out of Dr. Geisler's Christian Apologetics or, or uh, Dr. Uh, Grotas's or both. Both really yeah, good. Well, I tell, but, I'll, uh, I'll just say this. I think of Geisler, hands down, the best apologetics textbook ever written in the, in the 20th century, at least. Having said that, um, I was working on a master's degree, and it still took me three times to read it before I figured out what he was talking about. So it's <laughs> not uh, – I, I would use uh, Geisler and Terex. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist on the undergraduate level. And then on right. the graduate level, then uh, punish students with Christian apologetics. But um, but if you can get through Christian apologetics, then you can handle um, Aquinas' Summa Theologica, so – so uh, right. then you're ready for the major league. So, yeah, that's right. All right, Doc. Let me uh, let me put the number out there for people who may want to call in seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. And we um, have my little nephew ask you a question here, uh, Doc. All right. Hi, Doc. You are to look at. Chapter 3, The Da Vinci Code. Will you tell us about it? Chapter 3 of your book, Hijacking the Historical Jesus. Okay, let me see. Chapter 3. I'm going to have to open up. Hijacking the Historical <laughs> Jesus has been a long time. So read, oh, yeah, Chapter 3 was on The Da Vinci Code. Yeah, yeah. Dan Brown wrote a novel that a lot of people liked. I don't like reading novels. Novels are, are stories that aren't true. And um, and he wrote this novel, and a lot of people liked the story. But he claimed on the first page that any time his novel talks about history or historical writings or historical artifacts like things from the past, 
uh, he claimed that that was true history. And the fact is that no historian, believer or non-believer, would agree with him on that. So what he did in the Da Vinci Code, he acted like the early church never believed that Jesus was God. And right. that the, the Roman emperor, Emperor Constantine, forced, forced the bishops to turn Jesus into a god in about 325 A.D., when in reality... There's a scholar, Larry Hurtado, out of um, Edinburgh, University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and he wrote a book, The Lord Jesus Christ, 600 pages, and he is a scholar and expert on ancient history and the New Testament, and he shows that the early church, that's what made a Christian a Christian, was in the early 30s A.D. Uh, they acknowledged that Jesus was God. They believed in only one God, but they worshipped Jesus as God alongside the Father, yet as two distinct persons, Hurtado would argue it took a little while to figure out um, the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, but he would say that basically from day one, um, even before the Feast of Pentecost, once well, you know, once Jesus appeared to the disciples, you know, Doubting Thomas, you know, the second time he appeared to the disciples, Doubting Thomas said, The Lord of me and the God of me, my Lord and my God. So as soon as he saw Jesus risen from the dead, he realized not only is he the Messiah, he's Yahweh and Elohim. He is He is our Lord. He is our God. All those things he was telling us, that wasn't figurative speech. When he said, I and the Father are one, he really meant that he is equal to the Father. He is equally God. And um, right. so Dan Brown does a lot of weird stuff like that. Uh, Dan Brown doesn't even believe that Jesus died on the cross. He believes in the swoon theory that Jesus only passed out, but he knows nobody would believe that, so he has him dying on the cross in his novel. Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, he, and he believes that uh, Jesus was secretly married to Mary Magdalene, but the apostles were anti-woman. They were against women's rights. So she had to flee when she was pregnant with um, Jesus' uh, uh, baby. And now they've intermarried intermarried with a, a, a line of French kings that are hiding and waiting to reveal themselves um, as the, the kings of France or the kings of Europe, whatever. And, and Jesus' bloodline is missed in with that. And it's a bloodline sex cult is what Christianity really was according to Dan Brown. So, unfortunately, guys like, you know, it's bad enough when a guy like Phil Fernandez has to, for two or three years, speak about nothing but the Da Vinci Code. Um, yeah. Because that, no, that no historical scholar would believe what Dan Brown is saying, and no theological scholar or expert on the history of Christian thought. Um, but you still got to address it because so many people are buying it. Uh, it's bad enough that I got to do it, but when you get the world's premier defender of Jesus' historical and bodily resurrection, Gary Habermas, when he goes three or four years where that's all they wanted him to talk about, you know, I could just see the frustration on on Gary's face. And um, but uh, but it's something we need to address. That's like today the Jesus that Jesus is a myth. It's just borrowed from pagan myths. Jesus never even existed. No historical scholar would hold to that, but because it's become so popular on internet, atheist internet sites, um, it's something that's becoming popular today, and so we have to address it. We have to deal with these issues. 
Yeah, that that book, The Da Vinci Code, I remember that that took the world by storm. I mean, that was everybody had a copy, and even even Christians would read the book and think, oh, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a it's just a novel. Yeah, and you just show how yeah. problematic it was. In the book, one of the characters states that in a 300 period of time, the Christian church, and, and Dan Brown shows no, absolutely no knowledge of the Protestant Reformation. So so for him, if the Roman Catholic Church committed the Inquisition, that counts against Protestants too. So the Inquisition and the Crusades would count against Protestants too, and well, the Crusades were just self-defense against the Muslims invading uh, Europe and... Um, and uh, especially Eastern Europe, but whatever the case, um, uh, it's just uh, you know no scholar is going to going to agree uh, w- w- with Dan Brown on that. But it's just, it's just something when something becomes popular, it, we've got to oppose it. And nobody would have believed the so-called historical background that he promoted for his book unless um, they were historically illiterate. And we have so dumbed down our culture now that um, we'll believe that you can make up any kind of wild conspiracy theory from from centuries ago, and people will accept it. And they, we don't even understand. We, we think if something is historically possible, then I have the right to believe it. Well, that's not the way you do history. I mean, it's historically possible that um, the entire Egyptian culture did not exist and they were aliens who came down, aliens who re, who were able to reproduce and they came down from some other planet. I mean, that's historically possible, um, but if you believe that, you're an idiot. And, um, and so what you do is you deal with the text and archaeological finds and, um, and you try to reconstruct the history of the past based on probability. But now we have a bunch of people who know nothing about history. They know nothing about how to do history. And they think if something is logically possible, um, then that means right. it's uh, historically plausible. And that's that's just totally, totally not the case. And um, Mark Foreman, philosophy professor from Liberty University, met him a few times years ago, decades ago, um, but he showed where you could take the arguments of the Jesus Mithers and use those same arguments on Lincoln and Kennedy and argue that neither one of them existed uh, based on the parallels between their lives and their deaths, that therefore it was all made up, and it's just mythology. And, uh, well, we know Lincoln existed, and we know Kennedy existed, and we know they were assassinated. We know they really were elected in 1860, and but that's the kind of reasoning that goes into trying to deny that Jesus existed. Now Bart Ehrman did us a big favor and wrote that book, uh, Did Jesus Exist, where here the leading anti Christian New Testament scholar gives us about two hundred pages of arguing that uh any any historical scholar who accepts the evidence has to acknowledge that only not only that Jesus of Nazareth really did exist but that he did die by crucifixion and that his followers um, were so enhanced by and so impacted by his teachings that they were willing to die for his teachings. So so when, when the number one, when public enemy number one will give you that, 
um, you've got a pretty good good case to stand on. Yep, I agree. I think that's uh, a good way to put it. Let's do this. Let's uh, take a break for a couple minutes, give people a chance to call in and give uh, Doc a chance to catch his breath. When we come back, we're going to be looking at the Jesus Seminar as well as the Synoptic Problem. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? How does intelligent design differ from a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being. Where does everything come from? And uh, one one way you might might illustrate that is a joke that was making the rounds on the internet some years back, where scientists come to God and they say, "We can do everything you can do." God says, "Oh, that's interesting. Show me." And then they say, "Well, we can uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust and and as they're about to continue, God says, "Well, wait a second. Get your own dust." Okay. Now, that's what creation is. It's giving being to existence. Carpenters take pre-existing materials. They're designers, and design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns there which point you to intelligence. So, uh, another way I illustrate this is you imagine a pan balance, and you've got a bale that includes one side, and you've got a one-pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you know, you know it's more than one. It could be two pounds. It could be five pounds. It could be a million pounds. And that's how it is with intelligent design. We know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature, and things in biology and cosmology. But getting to an infinite, personal, transcendent, creator God of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to. But it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that uh, atheism, uh, the, the Dar- Darwinian evolution, and ev- uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not. So it gives you a lot. It takes you some way. You know, it's closer to the kingdom. But if you want the gospel, you're going to have to go to the gospel. For those of you that want to learn more, this book, The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me, amongst many of his other books. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap, uh, and a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. He's talking about particular bad philosophy. It was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because uh, the world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics, who have had great ministries in winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said, I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know uh, Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. They, it has good results. Uh, good philosophy has good results. You can't know error without studying truth, but you can't answer error without studying philosophy. 
because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, uh, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error. about his hijacking the historical Jesus, and he's given us a bunch of uh, good information uh, as well, a little bit of behind the scenes on the debate circuit. So we're going through his book. He just talked a little bit about uh, the Da Vinci Code and then how that kind of took, uh, took everything by storm and some of the problems with that. I think, J.J., you had a, a question for him again? Hi. Doc? We want it. We want it. Um, we want um to hear you um talk about the Jesus seminar. Very good. Yeah, the Jesus seminar. Very good, JJ. Yeah, the Jesus seminar. They're kind of they're kind of history now. I think for the most part, but they they made a big impact. There are guys like Marcus Borg out of Oregon State University and John Dominic Crossan and Robert Funk and. Um, they were a group of, of radical New Testament scholars, probably the most radical. They represented kind of the views of probably the 2 to 3% most radical views of, um, of uh, New Testament scholars. And um, they decided to take votes on which sayings of Jesus in the Gospels are authentic. And, um, and they only invited guys that were their former students or their colleagues that thought the same way that they did. So it would be like the Evangelical Theological Society um, taking votes on which sayings Jesus said that are in the Gospels, and um, the results wouldn't be shocking because everybody said, well, they, they were evangelicals before they went there. They only invited evangelicals, so the votes are going to be all the same pretty much. Um, and that's the way it was with the Jesus Seminar. They they only invited really radical guys who believed that most of the Gospels were, like, unreliable, 
and they only acknowledge a few things. You know, the interesting thing, though, is when Gary Habermas argues for the resurrection, virtually all the Jesus Seminar members will give you his core facts. That's how strong his case for the resurrection is, even radical Jesus Seminar guys, with the exception of like people like Robert. But whatever the case, so they took votes, and they ended up saying that uh, almost nothing that we have in, Jesus, in John's Gospel was said by Jesus and less than 20% of all the sayings in the Gospels were actually said by Jesus. And um, and so uh, that would be a non-issue, because radical scholars are going to be radical, anti-Christian scholars are going to be anti-Christian, uh, so it's not even a big deal. The problem is that whenever CNN or NBC or ABC, whatever, wanted to do a documentary on the true historical Jesus, most of the guys they interviewed were Jesus Seminar members. They got all the publicity, they got all the press, and um, and so they started to distort what people believed about Jesus. And that's why uh, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, Gary Habermas, Norman Geisler, people, great Christian apologists, uh, had to refute their work. In the uh, They started to meet in the eight, 1980s, and in the 1990s, and, and it was so important to refute their work. But now they're pretty much considered like old old news. Um, I think they accomplished what they set out to accomplish, which was to malign the name of Jesus so that every every time Time or Newsweek and Easter or Christmas rolled around, they'd ask, you know, uh, did Jesus... Uh, uh, who is Jesus, and it'd be all articles saying, well, New Testament scholars today no longer believe that he said such and such, when sometimes the vast majority of New Testament scholars did believe he said that. This guy was only speaking for the Jesus Seminar. And now the big thing that the Jesus Seminar does, which is what most liberal anti-Christian New Testament scholars do, is they assume, without proof, they assume miracles are impossible and then if you assume miracles are impossible, well, then obviously Jesus wasn't God, didn't perform miracles, didn't rise from the dead, and so you got to speculate about what actually occurred. But if you handle the Gospels uh, strictly as historical documents and just go, well, well what's the textual evidence say? Uh, is there anybody arguing against that in ancient literature? If you just go by what the historical evidence is, uh, we not only have um, the death and resurrection and appearances of Jesus and his claims to be God and his miraculous life, um, but I would argue that there's no real good historical basis to deny that Matthew wrote Matthew or that Mark wrote Mark or Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts as well. And I think you can make a really strong case that it was the Apostle John who wrote John. In fact, uh Balcam out of St. Andrews College, he argues that all four Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, though he doesn't believe in the traditional authors. Uh, but I don't know why he doesn't believe in the traditional authors, because early, early church fathers that mentioned authors attributed Matthew to Matthew, Mark to Mark, Luke to Luke, and John to John. So uh, so I think it's just a, it's amazing if you come at the biblical text in an unbiased manner— Without a bias against miracles, without a bias against the uh, the scriptures, it's amazing the overwhelming evidence there is, um, not only for uh, the Jesus of the Bible being the true Jesus of history, but also 
um, for the Gospels being historically reliable. Um, uh, and once you get reliable Gospels, then you find that, okay, well, then it's reliably reported that Jesus taught the Old Testament is God's word without error, and he promised that the Holy Spirit would bring to the apostles' remembrance all that Jesus taught them and guide them into all the truth, and that Jesus said heaven and earth would pass away, but his words would not pass away. Jesus is promising a completion um, of his of God's writing. So not only is there an Old Testament, Jesus is promising the New Testament, and that's the New Testament that we have today. And so, um, and so it's amazing how close we can come to the throne room of God just by studying the historical evidence. Um, but many New Testament scholars who don't worship Jesus, um, and many historians who don't worship Jesus, uh, will not go where the evidence leads if it leads them to a very uncomfortable place, i.e. the throne room of God. Good stuff. Okay, I'm going to have JJ ask you another question, um, and then after that, I want to I want to take some time looking at uh, Bar Ehrman. You got a, a few, a couple chapters on him, so we'll we'll do that. Go ahead, JJ. What's your next question here? Doc is um, chapter eight. Is Jesus just another myth? Very good question, JJ. And uh, when you you're going to school, JJ. Oh, yeah. What grade are you in? What grade are you in? Okay, good. Make sure when the teacher teaches history, make sure you study it, because um, that's the problem we're having. A lot of guys my age and Devin's age and, um, and people older than you but younger than us a lot of our problems is we were not we didn't pay attention when they taught us history or we weren't weren't taught history by somebody who really knew history and uh but the historical evidence is so strong that Jesus existed that now it was after I wrote this book Bart Ehrman who never read this book by the way I'm not saying that I had anything to do with it but Bart Ehrman ended up writing a book did Jesus exist and Bart Ehrman is like the number one enemy among New Testament scholars against uh, Christianity, uh, yet he wrote a book, Did Jesus Exist?, where he says basically all the historical evidence shows that Jesus of Nazareth did exist in the first century A.D., and he was um, um, a, a rabbi, a Jewish teacher who wasn't accepted by the other rabbis. They thought he was kind of radical, and uh, but Jesus gathered a following and eventually was crucified and um and and then early in the history of the church Bart Ehrman would not acknowledge as early as I think the evidence indicates um but that early in the history of the church there was the teaching that Jesus rose from the dead so by the time the apostle Paul starts writing and 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 Bart Ehrman's going to accept at least 6 or 7 of Paul's letters as being authentic um, that there was already this belief that Jesus was divine, that Jesus was God, and that he had become a man, had died on the cross for our sins, and bodily rose from the dead. So Bart Ehrman is honest enough to where he's got to, he's got to try to explain why Paul got it wrong about 50 A.D., just 20 years after Jesus walked the earth. And um, uh, whereas these other guys like Richard Carrier and Robert Price 
Um, Bart Ehrman is aware of their work, and he respects them. But he, uh, Bart Ehrman goes so far to say that he knows of no fully accredited school, um, college or university, that has anybody teaching in their history or biblical studies department who denies Jesus' real historical existence. He says it's just so far out. So, like, when I debated Robert Price, um, and it wasn't a good debate because Reggie Finley was the moderator, and he kept asking me questions. So it's kind of like Robert Price got about half of the time, and then the other half of the time was split between me and Reggie Finley, and I was having to respond to more of Reggie Finley's objections, which were not very scholarly, rather than dealing head-on with Robert Price's objections. But I did get the chance to tell Robert Price, I said, well, if you're only going to accept what eyewitnesses will tell you, how do you even know um, that the Holocaust occurred? And then his response was, uh, well, because my uh, my father or my grandfather liberated one of the camps, one of the prison camps, now I was going to come back and say, so then your grandson should not believe. In the future, your grandson should not believe in the Holocaust. But I didn't get a chance because Reggie Finley moved on from there. But I also said that uh, if we treat all of ancient first century A.D. history the way you treat uh, the the biblical data, we would reject all of first century A.D. history, even the existence of the Caesars. And Robert Price responded by saying something like, "That's all, I'm okay with that. And I said, yeah, but that's just it. Nobody else is. No other historian is. You're all alone. And then I felt bad because he felt offended by what I said. But it's like even he acknowledges he feels like a voice crying in the wilderness because nobody else wants to believe in him. But the reason why they don't want to acknowledge what he's saying, the other historical scholars, is because they don't deal with the evidence in as loose and uh, a wild, radical way as uh, Robert Price does. So the historical evidence is early. I would even argue we have eyewitness evidence uh, of Jesus. I know a lot of Christian apologists don't want to go. They only want to take what New Testament scholars will give you. But in hijacking the historical Jesus, I do argue that Matthew and John were eyewitnesses, that Luke did talk to eyewitnesses, uh, that Peter was an eyewitness, and he wrote. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was an eyewitness, and he wrote. And so I do argue um, for eyewitness uh, authorship. So it's early. We have early testimony about the life, death, and resurrection and miracles of Jesus. We have eyewitness accounts um, of that. Uh, it's it's reliable. Even the enemies, the early enemies of Christianity, when they write about it, they acknowledge enough for you to make a case for the resurrection and things of that sort. So, so basically I would argue that not only is it a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth lived, but, in fact, even non-believing scholars have acknowledged that Jesus' death by crucifixion around 30 to 33 A.D. is one of the most firmly established historical facts of ancient history. What they don't tell you, though, is there's the same amount of textual evidence, not just for his death on the cross, but also for his bodily resurrection and appearances. But they just want to throw that out, that historical evidence out, because of their bias against miracles. But that's just not fair. And so basically the idea that Jesus is a myth, that's very popular today. Um, but no his, no no leading historical scholar is gonna is gonna give you that. Now what we do have going on is guys like Robert Price and Richard Carrier who already believe that. 
are committed enough to their fight against Christianity to then go on and get Ph.D. degrees in their fields and argue for what they already believed before they received that graduate education. So, uh, right. but, that's uh, but that's only going to fly if um, uh, guys like J.J. don't study history and don't listen to their uncle Devin and their uh, aunt, aunt Melissa that, you know, do your homework, do your studies, that's because right. the evidence is so strong that Jesus existed that it's only on the Internet. Uh, where people are making these claims and actually uh, uh, deceiving people. Yes, sir. All right. I think we've got a couple more questions for you here, Doc. Chapter 6, the New Testament reality, and chapters um, 7, redating the New Testament books. Yeah, these are probably uh, two... I wouldn't say they're two of the more controversial chapters, but I would say this, that um, most apologists today, you know, God bless William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas, they're, they're friends of mine, though I don't see them as, as often as I would like to, um, but they have decided to argue for, like, the resurrection based on core historical facts, just as, as little of data as possible that our opponents will give us and then argue for it. So they usually don't argue for New Testament reliability, but that doesn't mean no apologist should. And in fact, when we deal with the Jesus mythers who don't accept the core facts, I don't know how to combat them uh, unless we do make a good case for the reliability of the scriptures. But when I redate the New Testament books, that's something that most uh, Christian apologists aren't going to agree with me on. Um, but I think the evidence is clear that the early church fathers were right and that Matthew wrote his gospel first. Matthew may have written as early as 35 A.D. to about 42 A.D. Um, Luke and Mark were probably written in the mid-40s A.D. And uh, John's gospel may have been written in the mid-50s A.D. And I can quote good, solid, premier New Testament scholars to back uh, my case, as well as the early church fathers, and um, and so uh, I think I can make a strong case. I think it's possible that John A.T. Robertson was right. It's possible that every New Testament book may have been written before 70 A.D. Um, not quite sure about, like, maybe Revelation and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and possibly Jude, but even they may have been written um, before 70 A.D. It's like what I told Frank Turek on his radio show once. Um not only do liberal New Testament scholars date the New Testament books too late, but they date some of the apostolic fathers, the pupils of the apostles that the apostles selected to lead the early church. They date their writings too late. So when we start dating their writings when they should have been dated, we find that they're quoting, you know, you got the Didache probably in the late 60s AD is quoting from Matthew's gospel, meaning Matthew's gospel had to be written earlier. And, um, but whatever the case with New Testament reliability, I go over the manuscript evidence. There are more copies of the New Testament than any other ancient writing. Um, there's more agreement between the copies, about 99.5% agreement. Um, uh, these copies are closer to when the originals were supposedly written, since we don't have the originals of pretty much anything from uh, first century A.D. And so by far the New Testament is the most reliable of all ancient literature. Homer's Iliad comes in second place, and it's way, way behind that. 
I mean, Plato's writings, we only have about seven copies written 1,200 to 1,300 years after they were supposedly written, and nobody doubts what Plato wrote. So from the manuscript evidence, uh, these ancient copies of the New Testament that we have, we can be confident that the New Testament that we have today is, in fact, um, what was originally written. The New Testament is reliable. We've got the testimony of the apostolic fathers, the pupils of the apostles, selected by the apostles to lead in the early church. They were their best pupils, and they quoted from or alluded to um, the writings uh, of the New Testament. In fact, by 107 AD, you have Ignatius, uh, Polycarp, and I believe Clement of Rome. By 107 AD, uh, you have at least 23, some would say 25, at least 23 out of the 27 New Testament books quoted to or alluded to as a, being as authoritative as the Old Testament books. So the early the early church fathers knew, the apostolic fathers knew by the close of the first century A.D., shortly after the apostle John died, they knew which books belonged in the New Testament. The, the questions about which books belong in the New Testament, that only rose afterwards when bogus books were being written by the Gnostic heretics um, that that came later, and then we had to do canonization by by subtraction, subtracting the heretical books. And that was like a 200-year process, figuring out which ones should be thrown out. But canonization by addition, as they were being written, the Holy Spirit was guiding the readers to recognize this was written by an apostle that has apostolic authority or a colleague of an apostle, so that it has apostolic authority. It was written early enough. It was. Um, it has uh, eyewitness uh, information. It doesn't contradict previous scripture. It doesn't teach heresy, uh, and it's profitable for the entire church. And therefore, it should be um, in the uh, in the New Testament. So, um, right. so uh, then you can find evidence from ancient sermons. J.P. Moreland points to the sermons from Acts chapters one through twelve and shows that the the vast majority of New Testament scholars say this was the most primitive, earliest preaching of the church, and it taught that Jesus uh, died on the cross for our sins and bodily um, rose from the dead. You get also the evidence of ancient creeds that were quoted uh, in the New Testament, ancient creeds that were re were recited or sung in the early church before the New Testament was written. They go back to the early 30s A.D., and they teach that Jesus is God. He died on the cross for our sins bodily rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, and salvation is only through him. And so you start putting the evidence of creeds, ancient sermons, the apostolic fathers, and then the letters of Paul, um, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Thessalonians, uh, and Philemon are accepted by the vast majority of New Testament critics. So even non-believers accept about seven of Paul's letters, and from that you can build a case and show that, wow, the same portrait of Jesus is being portrayed by Paul that was portrayed in the Gospels, and Paul's writings are so early that it goes back to about 50 AD when he started writing, and so this idea that legends developed about Jesus is just not the case, um, and this is why experts like John A.T. Robertson, William Ramsey, Miller Burroughs, F.F. Bruce, you know, Bruce Metzger, the list goes on and on, why scholars throughout the centuries um, have embraced the New Testament as being historically reliable. Now, as I mentioned with redating the Gospels, my main point there is that most 
Christian pastors and theologians and apologists, we accept the earliest dates that our New Testament professors will give us, but the earliest dates that they give us will be the earliest possible dates that their liberal professors often would allow them. And what I'm arguing for is the New Testament writings could have been earlier than that. And when you look at what the right. early church fathers said, I mean, when did Matthew start writing his gospel? He was a tax collector before Jesus chose him to be an apostle. He was probably the stenographer. Twice Jesus called the apostles scribes. Scribes are scribes because they scribble, not because they memorize. And so I think Matthew started writing portions of his gospel when he was taking notes when Jesus was preaching. And um, so I think he started writing his gospels before, uh, during Jesus' public ministry. And uh, so whatever the case, I, I actually make a case that you you could, and you have to read that chapter from Hijacking the Historical Jesus, but it is possible to date all 27 books of the New Testament before 70 A.D. And if someone just thinks that's too radical... I'd still say you can make a strong case that at least 22 or 23 of them were written before 70 A.D. Um, but the idea that the early church had no desire to start writing down Gospels almost immediately after Jesus' death, resurrection, appearances, and ascension, that's bogus. They're from a historical faith. I think it's bogus when some Christian apologists say that the Gospels were Greco-Roman literature. They weren't. It was Jewish religious literature, and the Jewish faith was a historical faith. They weren't going to turn to uh, the Greeks and the Romans and say, gee, how do we write biography? Um, uh, I think they just looked at thousands of years of the Jewish faith, 1,500 years of Jewish scriptures, and they said, you know what, we need to put down in written form. There was no video, no cameras, no um, audio recording. They said, we got to record Jesus' words for all mankind. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And the good students right. are going to take notes when their rabbi speaks, especially when their rabbi is God incarnate. And uh, so I think we could argue for real, not only the New Testament is reliable, but that, that, that we could still argue for early dates of the New Testament books, which is what the early church fathers uh, told us, versus what scholars like the Jesus Seminar say 2,000 years after the fact. Okay, good stuff. Um, with the next, I've uh, got a few minutes left. I'm going to have JJ read this uh, next question to you because I think it's important that we we also talk about this. Um, Czar Airman Leo the Four Gospels, Chapter Eleven. Thanks, Doc. Yeah, I know you said something about Bart Airman, and then what was after that? And what chapter is it? Chapter 11. Chapter 11. Oh, okay, okay. Well, that's a question that probably would be better addressed to the guy who co-authored the book with me. That was uh, Kyle Larson. He he does extensive study on Bart Ehrman, and he wrote four chapters on Bart Ehrman. Um, where I specialize in my approach to Bart Ehrman is, is just basically uh, the New Testament text. And, um, and Bart Ehrman... He, it's really kind of dishonest, but he Bart Ehrman argues that there's between 200,000 and 400,000. When you compare the New Testament copies that we have, the handwritten copies, there are between 200,000 and 400,000 variants. Now, a variant, let's say, Devin, how do you...
do you spell Devin? How do you spell your first name, Devin? Yep, D-E-V-I-N. D-E-V-I-N. Let's say somebody else spells it D-E-V-E-N. So let's say I wrote a story about Devin and I spelt it wrong. I put E-N instead of I-N. Well, that would count as a variant. And if there were 100 copies and, you know, one one said Devin E-N, one said Devin A-N, that's another variant, okay? So these variants add up. Some of the copyists misspelled words. Sometimes they left out a word. Sometimes maybe they added a word. And and so you got 200,000 to 400,000 variants. Well, that's more than all the verses in the New Testament. And then Bart Ehrman just leaves you there hanging to make your own decision, to make your, draw your own conclusion. Well, if you're a New Testament scholar, you, you understand, yeah, well, that's the way it's going to be when you have 24,000, 25,000 copies. Um, when you've got that many copies, some of the copyists are going to make some errors here. So if you just remove misspellings, and then there's the movable new. The movable new is like the letter N in the English language. And like we would say, I drive a car. But if we say automobile, we would say, I drive an automobile. So if the next word starts with a vowel, you add the N to the A. So instead of A, it becomes N, an automobile. And that's the same with the movable new. But apparently some of the copyists didn't know enough about Greek, so sometimes they would add the movable new when you shouldn't have, or they'd remove it when it should have been there. And uh, But if you just take those two out, um, all of a sudden the number of variants drops drastically. And then you take, uh, you know, the misspelled words. Sometimes they said, well, Bethesda is now called Bethsaida, so let's update the, the way we call it. Um, I mean, in the Greek, there's like, if you say John loves Jesus, um, there's something like 15 or 16 different ways to say that in the Greek, and you would still translate it in the English, John loves Jesus. So um, so whatever the case, if you remove everything except uh, viable variants, uh, viable means it is there's enough evidence for it, so maybe it did belong in the original. We're not sure, so it's viable. And then meaningful to where it changes the meaning of the passage if you just limit it to the viable, meaningful passages, um, that's less than half of 1% of the words of the New Testament. So that's where Bruce Metzger and F.F. F. Bruce said that the New Testament manuscripts are 99.5% um, in agreement or 99.5% accurate. In other words, it's only the meaningful um, viable variants that matter. And by the way, that's not the difference between confidence in the New Testament and no confidence in the New Testament, skepticism, like Bart Ehrman wants us to have. The difference is between the New American Standard Bible or the New King James Version Bible. Do you add the last 12 verses or so of Mark's Gospel, uh, or do you leave it out? Do you add John seven fifty three to John chapter 8, verse 11, the woman caught in adultery? That's not in the oldest manuscripts. Um, you know, so uh, so so basically, the, it, it, Bart Ehrman's writings, if, if you know your stuff and you read them closely, he's not telling us anything that wasn't already in the footnotes of our English translations today. And it's never been considered any big deal. If Bart Ehrman was true that we, because of all these variants, we really don't know what's going on there, then I don't know why he worked with Bruce Metzger on the um, Greek 
uh, translation of the uh, New Testament so that we have the Greek text, the agreed-upon Greek text uh, of the New Testament. It just seems to me that he should give all the money he made doing that. He should give it back and say, nope, I don't believe we can know anything. And um, But if you have the Greek New Testament... You got the Greek, that's what the scholars say we think it says, but then you got all the manuscript evidence that might disagree with it below it, underneath it, and so you can make your own choices, uh, but in the end, uh, no doctrine of Christianity has changed in one iota. Now, I favor the majority of the manuscripts. Most New Testament scholars, even my buddies, Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig, J.P. Moreland, they tend to favor the older manuscripts that we find but I, I think most of the variants are in these older ones. The majority text has more agreement. It's just, but whatever the case, um, so uh, all I would say is that if somebody's preaching from the New American Standard and they just preach what is bracketed out in there, they're preaching virtually the same thing as somebody else is preaching from the New King James Version. So the debate is about which which English translation is the best. The debate is not about, gee, do we know anything about the New Testament. No, we, we've got enough manuscript, we've got more, more manuscript evidence for the New Testament than we have for any other writing in ancient literature. And when Bart Ehrman tries to uh, confuse, to get people to believe otherwise, he's just misleading them. That's good. Yeah, that is good. I'd love to see you, you uh, be able to take a debate with, with him sometime, Doc. If the topic is is right, yeah, I'd be willing to do it. Um, just got to make sure it's in my wheelhouse, in my field of expertise, because uh, he is he is a legitimate scholar. That's the one thing I will say about him. And yes. I would like to debate someday Robert Price in a time debate where we both get just as much time, um, right? Because uh, I think it's a it's a lot easier to refute his uh, his uh, arguments um, in a formal time debate than if you have like just a talk show and Reggie Finley butting in right. and asking questions and that aren't really relevant well, to the debate. And uh, so well, I'd love to we'll, debate Robert. Uh, he seems like a nice guy too, so Yeah. What we'll do is we'll put up some of the links to some of the debates you've done. Um I don't know if you have any more Thursdays free this summer, but uh, I'd love to to do a similar show uh with your book The Atheist Delusion. I think that'd be a real uh, important show to do. So maybe I'll get with you and, and we can try and work that out. But, um, you know, yeah, really, summer, really... Summers are good. Also, I don't know if you always do this at 3.30, but 3.30 I could do a debate like this even during the school year. I mean, a dialogue during the school year, an interview during the school year. But, but yeah, let's do at least one more during the summer and then talk about something beyond that. But I love what you're doing, brother. Uh, give, give your missus and your baby a hug for me and and shake uh, JJ's hands over there. So, thank you, Doc. Thank you, JJ. Love, you did a great job. We love you, Doc. Looking forward to uh, hooking up with you in October. When you come down. <laughs> hey, I love you guys as well. Miss you guys, and, and it's going to be great seeing you again in October. God bless, man. Amen. God bless. All right, folks, that was Dr. Phil Fernandez. Uh usual, the guy is just a, a genius. He he knows so much about so many things. That's that's the hard thing about interviewing Doc. He knows a lot about a lot of things. So hopefully we can work it out and get him on to come on again and do a show on uh, his book, The Atheist Delusion. 
JJ, what are your thoughts on today's show? Did you did you like that? I loved it. All right, JJ is a apologist in training. So uh, join us next week. Uh, I think let me you see we've got uh, some really good shows kind of lined up in the future. Uh, next week we will be looking at uh, probably truth and objective morality. So join us next week. God bless. Travel.